So Micah chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and this is God's word. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away. For this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob, I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Uh, The passage that we looked at last week in chapter 1 was really full on, wasn't it? And I have to confess that I had, uh, that it was a really hard passage to preach because it's 
so dark that it's completely consumed with the theme of God's judgment. Maybe that's a large reason why so many preachers avoid preaching on the book of Micah, because it's just so negative. But I received an email um, afterwards that really encouraged me. And I've asked for the person's permission to share it with you all, because I think you'll be encouraged too. They're relatively young, but the spiritual insight that they had to what the opening chapter of the book of Micah is all about is really spot on. Anyway, he said this. The passage of Micah was a very hard passage to read and also understand. In the passage, what I found out was how serious sin is. You said that in our culture we try to cut out the sin, but because our heart is deceitful above all else, it is so hard to do. Also touched on were idolatry and selfishness. What struck me, though, was the analogy that was used that snug will become unbearable. As if even though you might be living in the most comfortable place and not have a worry about the world, when God judges you, he won't care where you live and how nice your house is. He will judge you and ask for an account of your sin. This made me think about how prepared I need to be for the day God returns because I find myself relying on the things of this world. Whether it be listening to music or playing a sport, I can find myself relying on the selfish sin rather than on Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I want to thank you for teaching me and challenging me with the hard stuff in the Christian walk. It made me really think about where I find my hope. Is it in Kingston? Is it in my phone? No, it has to be Jesus. As when the day of judgment comes, will I go to Jesus or go to hell? I want to be with Jesus Christ. What's so encouraging about that is only somebody with the Spirit of God at work in their heart can think like that. Because by nature, any talk about our sin or about God's judgment is just something that, quite frankly, we don't want to hear. In fact, the Bible says that we will do everything that we possibly can to avoid it. In chapter 2, the prophet Micah continues with the same message that he had in chapter 1, except now he gets more specific. He begins with confronting what I refer to as greedy sheep in verses 1 to 5, of men who plot evil on their beds and then first thing in the morning they carry it out. In verse 2, we're told what that was. They covet fields and seize them. Then in verse 3, they defraud a man of his home and of his inheritance. God's people at this point had become completely consumed with greed and materialism. 
A lot like many people today, huh? Whether it be a dodgy tradesman who grossly overquotes what a job is worth or does a substandard job, or a financial advisor who rips you off with an unethical business investment, greed and corruption continue to exist all around us. A couple of years ago, uh, Angie and I took our car, our people mover, to a mechanic who completely ripped us off. To make matters worse, as a result, the car was actually dangerous to drive. He didn't even fix it. When I pulled out of his workshop onto the main road, the car actually didn't have enough power to get up uh, the hill, and so it was a hazard to oncoming traffic. Thankfully, though, it was clear that the guy had done the wrong thing, and let's just say that after a bit of negotiating, uh, the company he worked for took responsibility for fixing it. But can I just say, I've never been so disappointed or angry. It makes you feel sick when people take advantage of you in this kind of way, especially with mechanics, because for most of us, who knows what they do? Have you ever had something like that happen to you? Because when it does, it makes you cry out for justice. Oh, that judgment would be done, and that right soon. But just take a look at how God says he is going to respond himself in verses 3 to 5. For he says that he will make the punishment fit the crime. You see, the Israelites might have been lying around on their beds planning to do evil. But in verse 3, the Lord says that he too is planning evil. It's actually the exact same words in Hebrew. Not that God, that well, not that rather what God planned to do was evil in and of itself, but it will have exactly the same disastrous consequences as the people who were planning to do evil had. That is, the disaster they had planned for others will actually come back and be visited upon them. As the prophet Amos also says, they might lounge around on their ivory couches in luxury, listening to music now. But in the future, the only music, the only tunes that they will be hearing will be songs of mourning. Their enemies will taunt them with songs of how they are utterly ruined. That might sound harsh, but once again, it's a case of the punishment Fitting the crime. It's that God's justice will ultimately be done. There's a song in Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado, uh, which is actually called The Punishment Fits the Crime. Uh, and in one of the verses, it says this about billiard sharks who scam people out of their money. The billiard shark... Uh, uh, who anyone catches, his doom extremely is his doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell on a spot that's always barred, and there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stalls on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. The punishment fits the crime. 
They dealt frustration and pain to others. That's what they themselves will experience. In the context of the book of Micah, people may get away with taking other people's land now, but God says there's going to come a day when that land will be taken from them. Where the disaster that they plan for others will be visited upon themselves. God's justice will be done. This rebuke would have been especially powerful coming from Micah, since as we saw last week, Micah came from an obscure country town called Morasheth. And so he would have seen firsthand how the rich were taking away the land from the poor. Which means that his rebuke would have been all the more personal and all the more pertinent. People who farm land, I think, have an extra special appreciation of this point. Because their livelihood, and indeed I think even their own personal identity, is so closely connected to the land. Which, as we saw last week, is why God specifically rebukes people in association with the towns that they live in. Again, if we could contextualise it for today, it's like saying snug will become unbearable or Rose Bay will become a desert. The name of the place signifies its judgment. Now, I realise that all of this talk about being punished and judged by the Lord is once again really negative. So much so that it can even make people object theologically not to be not just uncomfortable but to strenuously object at this point with all of everything that I've been saying. You might, you might be thinking in your head, yeah, but does the God of the Bible really treat people that way? I mean, isn't the Lord supposed to bless and most of all do good to people? But you know what? That's exactly what the false prophets were saying. These ravenous wolves who were opposed to Micah's ministry, just take a look at verses 6 and 7. Because not only is God legitimately angry at all of the wrongdoing his people were committing, but he is especially angry with the people who are claiming that he wasn't. Who were devouring his people by taking the robes off their back and driving their women and children from their homes. God is angry about that. He's angry because of their insatiable greed and were denying them, their women and children in particular, of their future inheritance. That is a grievous evil, is it not? And something that the Lord God Almighty should rightly be angry about. But as Micah says in verse 6, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? The answer, yes. In contrast to Micah, these false teachers were preaching a message only of pleasure and prosperity. 
that the Lord only wants to materially bless you and make your life more comfortable and more enjoyable. But take note of what Micah says in verse 11, because he tells us just how untrustworthy and deceitful these ravenous wolves really are. He says, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for these people. They're the party prophets. If you think that all of this is a little bit far-fetched and not really relevant for today, consider this. During all of the lockdowns involving COVID-19, why is it in Australia, bottle shops were still considered to be an essential service? Is it because as a nation, we just cannot do without alcohol? Let me ask you an even more personal question. Could you go without wine or beer for an entire week? If you can't, then can I suggest it illustrates that you're not relying on the Lord, but have become dependent on something else. There's always been this inextricable link, brothers and sisters, between false teaching and greed. And you'll never really see one without the other. The Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 6 that it's the problem of people who view and quote godliness as a means to financial gain. Godliness as a means to financial gain. That's the root of all really connection with false teaching. It's what motivates and drives false teachers. It's the desire to be rich and famous. Because despite what they claim, they don't worship the Lord, they worship the God of mammon. L. Ron Hubbard, the science fiction writer who was famous for starting the Church of Scientology, once said, quote, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion. And that's the way that it's always been with false teachers. Someone once said, soft teaching produces hard hearts, whereas the teaching of hard truths produces soft hearts. That's why we're preaching through the book of Micah. Want to become a Christianette? And listen to sermonettes. Want to grow in maturity and knowledge of God and his word? Then listen to the whole counsel of God. Hard truths produce soft hearts. Soft truths produce hard hearts. Now, once again, all of this is incredibly bleak picture, isn't it? But then all of a sudden in verses 12 and 13, the light of God's grace shines through. And in the midst of all of this talk of God's judgment, there is suddenly this dramatic promise of salvation. For it tells how the Lord is going to act as his people's shepherd. The specific historical event that Micah is referring to is often overlooked or downplayed today. But 
It was one of the greatest acts of deliverance the world has ever seen. You see, at the time that Micah was ministering, Hezekiah was the king over Judah. And because of all of this um, spiritual rebellion that was going on, the Lord, as he threatened, sent Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and his army of 185,000 soldiers. Let that number just sink in for a moment. Jerusalem was surrounded by 185,000 soldiers to take his people captive and to lead them all into exile. And they were completely surrounded. We'll learn next week that the situation became so desperate that they ran out of food so completely they had to eat their own children and eat their own excrement. That's how bad it was. That's how angry God was. That's how serious his judgment was. Now, as you imagine, from a human point of view, the situation is absolutely hopeless. There was no way that Hezekiah or any of the Jews um, who were held up within the walls of Jerusalem would be able to escape. It was impossible. And their defeat and demise uh, would have been certain if, if the Lord hadn't have acted supernaturally to deliver them. A couple of hundred years ago, uh, the ruins of Sennacherib's palace were actually discovered. And one of the most significant things that they found was what has become known today as Sennacherib's prism. Uh, it's basically a hexagonal block of stone, part of which contains a record of what the Bible itself uh, says took place. And on it, Sennacherib records that all of the outlying towns, villages like Morasheth, where Micah himself had come from, had been totally destroyed by him. They had been razed to the ground, which is also exactly what the Lord said was going to occur back in chapter 1. But of particular significance, though, was that all of the Israelites had taken shelter inside the walls of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib says, in his own words, they had become like a bird in a cage. They were trapped. They were going nowhere. We would say today they were like fish in a barrel. Or Micah would have said they were like sheep in a pen. It's a reference to all of the people who had survived the invasion by Sennacherib and whom the Lord gathered together so that there would be a remnant of his people to survive. But here's the thing. Just when everything looked like it was completely lost, just when it looked like defeat was a foregone confusion, oh, sorry, conclusion, all of a sudden Sennacherib just gives up and leaves. And if you look to his prism, he doesn't tell you why. But the Bible does. And it's an event that is so significant that it's not recorded once in the Bible. It's not even recorded twice in the Bible. It's recorded three times in the Bible. If you're taking notes, 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 36. 
2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah chapter 36. Because just when there was absolutely no way of escape and everything was utterly hopeless, God does something absolutely miraculous. Hezekiah humbles himself in prayer and in response, the angel of the Lord strikes down the entire army in a single night. 185,000 soldiers die. God takes their breath away. The event is so significant that even the Greek historian Herodotus wrote about it. And he confirms that the entire Assyrian army was destroyed in one night, except he puts it down to a plague. You see, the Lord was doing what he said. He was breaking out against the king of Assyria's army and doing just as he said he would. And this was all the more profound when you realise, if you're familiar with those passages I referred to, Sennacherib was the guy who would stood on the wall and he would shout out to all of the people, blasphemously boasting this. This is what he said beforehand. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the, king of the, uh, from the hand of the king of Assyria? Basically, what Sennacherib was saying is, there is no God like me. There is no God who is able to save. There is no God in Israel who will be able to deliver you from me. Oh yeah, God says, gone. In a bit of a footnote, the Bible says that Sennacherib retreated from Jerusalem and he returned to Assyria. And then it says this, One day while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, he was cut down by the sword by two of his sons. So much for his god being able to defeat the Lord. His god couldn't save him even when he was worshipping his god in his own temple. The time and place in which you'd think that his idol was the most powerful to save, it was not. All of which means that the Lord is again showing his people that he alone has the power to save. Only he has the power to save if they would but humble themselves before him and turn from their sin. Now what Micah is talking about here in verses 12 to 13 is a beautiful foreshadowing, I think, regarding the person and work of Jesus. The one who significantly calls himself the good shepherd. The one who, as we read, or as we read from before, in John chapter 10, not only lays down his life for the sheep, but is himself the gate. The one who is our all-conquering king who passes before us at our head. And boy, you don't want to be on his bad side, would you? Because by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, Jesus removes the judgment of God's people in a single day. The judgment falls on him. He has broken the power of sin and death. And the strong man himself has been bound and now is the day for setting captives free. Now, isn't that all just incredible? Incredible. 
Because if you've ever felt unworthy of the Lord's love, then this passage functions as a tremendous encouragement and assurance. For no matter how numerous your sins are, God's grace is greater still. The judgment of God has fallen on his own son. You may have been guilty of rebelling against him, but as soon as you humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, then it is immediately received. And you might think, oh, but you know, there are things that I've done that I'm so ashamed of. You really need to get over yourself. He's saying that the son of God and his death was not enough. He's saying that God's not really powerful to save, that he can't destroy an entire Assyrian army in a single night and he can't forgive you of some sin. You really want to say that? For on the cross, Jesus has himself been slain for the penalty of the sin which we deserved. As we looked at at Easter, it is finished. There is now no more atonement or sacrifice to be paid. Not only that, but by rising again from the dead, he has defeated death once and for all. And then, and we miss, I think we overlook this point, but ascending into heaven... He is now seated on God's throne where he will one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you remember how we started church this morning with our reading from Hebrews chapter 4? Whenever we're struggling with sin and temptation, we can come to Jesus who is our great high priest and we know that he will sympathize with us. We know that we'll receive mercy and get grace in our hour of need to resist temptation. Why? Because Jesus has been tempted in every way. Jesus knows exactly what it's like for what we're going through. And yet he was without sin. That's the key, isn't it? If you're studying for your high school certificate, you go to the person that hopefully got 100 out of 100. They know what it's like to procrastinate, but study. You don't go to the person that failed because they are somehow more authentic and can relate to your struggles. You go to the one who succeeded, who knows all the temptations and yet doesn't give in to them. That's the person that can help you in your hour of need. How much more perfectly does God, in his son, as our high priest, help us? The defeat of Sennacherib was incredible. 185,000 soldiers dead in a single night. That's how powerful the Lord God Almighty is. He need only to snap his fingers and he could take our breath away. But the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus is infinitely more amazing still. Because when we put our trust in him, at that moment, we receive the free gift of eternal life. We're like that other thief on the cross whom Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Where we go from being God's enemies to being his friends. 
where we go, like Ella said before, from being in the dark to now not just being in the light, but the Bible actually says being light. That's the first and most important thing that we need to see. The second thing follows on from it. And that is in the light of God's gracious provision of salvation, he calls on us to live in a way which reflects his holy and righteous character. Can I say this? Especially, friends, in the way that we conduct our business. We often talk about, don't we, at church, rightly so, about sexual purity, faithfulness. That's important. But I don't think we talk enough about greed. Are we acting with ethical integrity? There's a very powerful parallel passage uh, to Micah chapter 2, and it's found in James chapter 5. If you'd turn up to it with me, please, and we'll read from it together. It's just such an intense challenge as to how we handle money because it's something that the Lord himself takes incredibly seriously. So James chapter 5, I'm just going to read to you from verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. See, they think that this wealth is going to last forever. It's not. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Isn't that a powerful challenge to act with ethical, financial integrity? Micah chapter 2 is a timeless reminder to live for the Lord and not for ourselves. To live for yourself, James says, to fatten yourself up with all of this luxury is like, well, basically being a turkey for Thanksgiving. Fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter. Alternatively, we are to actively put sin to death. For only he has the ability to deliver, only he has the mercy to forgive, and only he has the power to save. But the book of Micah also contains a corporate challenge that the Lord holds, I think, entire nations accountable. Yes, he saves those who looks to him, but he also, and I think, please hear this, he also judges those who do not. Universalism, that is, everybody in the end goes to heaven, is a lie of the devil. 
we have our monthly time of prayer as a congregation today and how important it is, I think, we all pray for the upcoming election. We're commanded in Scripture to pray for our leaders. In 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul says that we should intercede for them as of first importance, that we might live quiet and peaceful lives in all holiness. Now, to be honest with you, I think it's easy to become depressed and disheartened by how things are going in Australia. But the Holy Spirit reveals to us something different. He reveals to us through Micah that the Lord sees the injustices of the world and he will act. Let's put our hope and trust in him then and plead for the needs of this world that God might snap his fingers, have mercy on our nation and revive us, that God would uh, rescue us from ourselves and that we would live lives that honour and glorify the name of the Lord and testify to those who do not believe. Let's come together in prayer, shall we? I'm going to hand over to Derek. He's going to explain how that will happen. Thanks, Derek.